Today I am reading from Acts 17, verses 1 through 4. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it from you. Okay. Go for it. All right. Check. Everybody hear me? All right. Emily and crew, well done. Great job. Great job. Also, Ruth, great job. Everybody loves you, Ruth. Everybody does. Okay. Um, uh, okay. So in a couple of weeks, we're starting, um, I know she just announced one book study. We like to have lots of book studies. We like books. Um, and so I, I'm trying to get the whole church to read a book together at the same time. There is a, there's a book called, um, a church called Tov. Uh, it's a Hebrew word uh, that means goodness. And uh, it was written by oh, my professor, um, uh, Scott McKnight. Um, and it is a phenomenal book. It's about, I mean, in case you haven't noticed, the church has had a hard time the last few years. Um, it hasn't been particularly healthy. Lots of, lots of pastors getting exposed for abuses and um, entire elder boards getting condemned for uh, just for covering up um, abuses of, of, towards women and children and all kinds of stuff. Um, and so at some point we need to have a big conversation about how to like bring health back to the church and, and goodness in the church. So the subtitle of the book is uh, uh, Forming a Goodness Culture um, that Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. Um, and so I have all these bookmarks and there's more in the lobby there. On the front it's got the cover of the book and you can order it. Um, Amazon or whatever, and on the back it has sort of the reading plan. You got um, it's it's going to take two months. I, I'm I'm trying to give like lots of space for people to read because I know people are slower readers, and some of you are like two months. I'm going to read that in two days. I applaud you, but play along. Um, uh, humble yourself, dear Lord. Yeah, no kids for you. Um, so week one, you know, we got we got introduction and forward, and week two we got chapter one. Week three we got chapters two and three. Um, it's a heavy book. Um, I know some of the people that are mentioned in the book and some of the stuff that they've gone through, but by the time you work your way through, you're like, it, it starts off with here's all the things that have gone wrong and here's all the ways we can make things right. And uh, I think that's important. So in the lobby, I can see them from here. There is uh, some stacks of bookmarks there. Um, and I'm going to put some right over here. And um, they may get blown away by the wind. Only one way to find out. I'll still leave them there. Um, so that... Also, I just want to make you aware in case, because uh, people like to know sort of the status on things. Um, last month, we were pretty low on, uh, on giving, like probably like a third lower than we normally are. And the problem is like we're trying to provide for people who can't afford to pay their mortgage and their rent because of the pandemic. And we're trying to pay for counseling for a lot of people who have really been through it. So... Um, we're committed to these people to keep these things rolling. And so um, if you have it, 
uh, give it. And also, if you need, I think usually on the screen, there's a ticker right over here somewhere that says, if you need help, email us. If you can help, there's a number you can text to give. Um, but if you are in need, um, don't give. Reach out, and, uh, and we'll do what we can to help you. We try not to say no. Um, so this is our passage today. Well, there it was. It's not there now. Um, so Paul has gone into, well, let's, just, let's just read that first verse uh, one more time here. Oh, oh, I want to do this. Everyone stand with me. What time is it? Dude, I'm going to go way over today, but where are you guys online going? Where are you guys? We got a breeze and everything. So this is the Shema. We haven't done this in a while. We used to do this every couple of weeks when we were uh, gathering with all, whatever, 800 so people. Um, and so if you're in your living room, stand up, stretch out, because we're going to do it again. And so what you're going to do is repeat after me. This is the prayer that the... Uh, the, uh, that Jesus amended and gave to the Christians, and the Christians would pray it several times a day. And so repeat after me and do it with vigor, all right? Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Like that. Um, okay, here we go. Say this together with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You can be seated. So, um, our passage today starts off like this. Paul uh, and Silas and the other travelers with them have gone to another town, and it says, on three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So, Luke doesn't tell us. He tells us that, that he was preaching the gospel to them and teaching them about Jesus and convincing them that Jesus was the Messiah. But that's all Luke gives us is these two little lines. Uh, Luke doesn't really tell us and fill us in on it would be great if Luke would say, and here's the exact sermon that Paul gave so we can know exactly what he's talking about. Um, but he didn't. Um, and oftentimes this is a problem because we, in, in lieu of like having all the words there, we tend to inject our own ideas about what Paul exactly was saying and what Paul was doing. Um, and so what I want to do this morning is I want to run you, I'm, I'm going to go this week and next week. I actually titled this part one so that I would commit to doing another week of this. Um, because oftentimes what Paul is saying and what we are hearing are not the same thing. And so I want to take a couple of weeks and I want to lay out some of the narratives that Paul is running through in his brain when he is talking about Jesus. Um, we tend to read the Bible as modern Christians and assume it's all about heaven and hell and, and getting to heaven when you die. That is not what is on Paul's mind. Paul is, is fully concerned with the restora restoration of all things and how God is going to do that. How things will be made right again because things were really, really broken as they still are now. Um, and so oftentimes we also assume that Paul and Jesus are doing the same thing and they actually aren't. Jesus wasn't per se preaching the gospel as we understand it. Jesus was coming to the Jewish people and teaching them about the kingdom. Um, Paul was teaching the Gentiles uh, salvation by faith uh, through grace alone, not of works. That is not what Jesus was teaching because they have two different audiences. Jesus' audience is Jewish. Paul's audience is Gentile. And so Jesus is not teaching to the Jewish people salvation by, by faith um, through grace. Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom that they had already been called to be a part of and what it actually looks like to correct a lot of the bad ideas that they had about what it was going to look like. Paul, his entire ministry is centered on the Gentiles need to enter into the people of God and they never have before and they need to hear how they are included. And how will they be included? By grace, through faith. Um, 
And so that is why Jesus and Paul are not saying the same thing. That's why Jesus only mentions salvation one time to Zacchaeus, like we talked about last week. And Paul mentions it 45 times. Um, because for Paul, it is all about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. This is how the world begins to be made right. Everyone coming in and understanding who their king actually is and forsaking their earthly kings. And so what I want to do today is I want to teach you one of the narratives. I want to teach you the big narrative that Paul uh, has in his brain. Um, if you are a scholastic, academic kind of person and you'd like to read more about what I'm talking about, there's a book by N.T. Wright called Paul and the Faithfulness of God. Um, and... Starting at about page 450, it's about 1,600 pages book, so don't buy it if you're not going to read it. Um, but starting at about page 450 to about maybe 550 or 530, this is, this is where I'm going to sort of like, I'm taking uh, what Wright tells us. Uh, he's the world's foremost scholar of first century Judaism and Christianity. And so I'm laying this out for you today. So if you want to read more about it, he goes into much greater detail. Also, that whole entire book is incredible. Um, so... Oh, let's see, where do, I, where do I start here? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off teaching you a narrative that Paul believed. Next week I'm going to teach you two more. But this is one huge narrative that I want you to understand. And I've called it the nesting doll narrative, and you'll see why. Um, it is a vision that Paul has that goes from the very beginning of scriptures all the way to the time of Christ. It talks about the problem and what exactly Jesus did to fix it. I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes here. And then in the second half of the sermon, I'm going to talk about what that means for us. How are we to view this? So... There is one main plot running through the scriptures from Genesis um, all the way up, really through all of human history and beyond it, that Paul believes um, and teaches that this, is, this will also be the first century Pharisee view. When you read about the Pharisees, this is what they believe. This was Paul's a Pharisee. And so Paul teaches this a lot. Um, so the main plot in the text, in Paul's mind, that he is teaching is that is about, has to do with humanity's position of authority. Mankind, humankind, our position of authority in the world. He gets that um, from the book of Genesis. There's this created order, this narrative of creation, where it starts off with day one at creation. God creates light, day two, sky, and firmament, day three. We walk through all the days. Day six, land animals. And then lastly, the very last thing that God creates, as if it's the crowning of all of creation. He creates all of this world, and he crowns it with humanity. And he puts Adam and Eve there in the garden, uh, so humans were put there to guide creation, to bring flourishing to creation, to guide it into what it was supposed to be. Also, there's a lot, there's these, these phrases like the imago Dei, the image of God. They were put there so that when the creation looks at them, they know what God looks like. Um, this is how Israel thought of themselves, by the way, that they were here to show the world what God looked like. And so they were supposed to be that people, and we're going to get there. Um, so humanity's position of authority. Um, as long as God remains over directly in charge of people, people answer directly to their king, which is Yahweh. As long as Yahweh is in charge and the people are being led by Yahweh, everything will continue to flourish, everything will continue to move forward. However, um, there is something that happens. Um, there is this failure of humanity where they fail to make and keep God, Yahweh, as their king. Um, and they enter into something called idolatry. And there are strict warnings in the text about idolatry. And one of the most poetic, artistic warnings about idolatry explains what happens when someone else becomes king other than Yahweh. When, when humans follow other people, other things, other gods, what happens? And it's buried, actually, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is, to me, one of the most fascinating things in all of the Bible 
It mirrors the creation story, but it reverses it and puts it backwards. Um, it says, in other words, it says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol in any image, in any shape. Um, so he said, there's this warning, says, at no point should you ever enter into idolatry. At no point should anything take the place over you of Yahweh, of God, God's self. When this happens, there are repercussions. And then the author of the text takes the creation story and flips it upside down as if to say, this is how you deconstruct and take apart all that God is doing. You want to ruin it? You want to send it all into reverse? Create an idol. And then it lists these idols backwards. It starts off with man or woman, and then animals on the earth, and then birds that fly in the air, creatures that move along the ground, fish in the waters below, the sky, the sea, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, all the heavenly array. Do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. And so creation starts like this, human beings on top and God above them, leading them. And when you commit idolatry, when you put anything else in place of God, the whole thing comes apart and everything starts to devolve and everything starts to fall apart again. Creation begins to enter into pain and suffering and death. Um, the chaos of the dark waters begins to close in again and the spirit moves on. Like the, the picture there is absolutely brilliant. What happens when we, when we create idols, when we follow people that are not God? Everything that God is doing becomes undone. Everything. You want to ruin the work of God, put someone else on the throne in your life. Follow somebody else but Jesus. Um, and so, uh, this is what happens. And so, after this happens, God responds. God is always a God who responds in a gracious, generous, saving, salvific, if you will, way. So there is this subplot underneath it. God's response is to create Israel. All of humanity is now fallen. We call this the fall. Oftentimes we think about the fall as in, oh, we sinned. Um, and so now we're separated from God. It, it wasn't just a sin. It was literally the usurping of the throne of God. Um, the serpent comes to them. And the serpent says, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so instead of having God over them, they want to be like God. This is also repeated several times, including stories like the Tower of Babel, where they're building a stairway to get to heaven, right? To get to where God is sitting on a throne. Because they believed back then in the ancient Near East cultures, they believed the sky was like this Truman Show kind of dome firmament kind of thing and God is up there so we're going to build a giant ziggurat up to God and we're going to climb up and sit on the throne over and over in Genesis 1 through 11 you are told stories about the usurping of the throne of God and then they tell us the story of Israel and how Israel constantly ignored the leading of God in their lives and committed idolatry it's like telling the story before you tell the story it's like a preview of the movie to come and so God responds all of the earth has now fallen humankind is not where they're supposed to be. Everything is sort of devolving and falling apart. And so God says, here's my response. I'm going to create a new people that are going to be this people, that are going to be present in the world. This is Israel. And the world is going to look at them, and they're going to know what God is like, and it's going to draw them in. So God creates Israel. That is his first response. But Israel themselves fail right off the bat. Golden calves, all kinds of stuff. They're always following um, idols. They, they, they make for themselves human kings. They look around and say, everyone else has a human king. We want a human king. And God's like, I am your king. And they're like, no, well, we, we yes, you're our king. We want somebody to rule sort of under you, like, like, like a middle person right there. And, and they'll sort of speak for you and we'll follow them. And God says, it's not going to go well. You're not going to like it. And they're like, yes, we are. And so he does it. Never goes well again. Um, 
And so God responds again with Torah, with the Torah. There has already been a covenant with Israel was born out of this covenant that God is going to like, um, uh uh-oh, we broke it. What did we do? Oh, man, we're back in the 90s. Did I do something? Did I? Oh, I'm just going to keep rolling. All right. Ah, there we go. All right. Oh, now it's over there. You know what? doesn't matter. We're going to keep going. Um, and so there has already been a covenant. God says, Israel, I'm going to make you um, this special people in the world as, 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 as numerous as the sands of the sea, the stars in the sky. And um, scattering my thoughts again. And so now God makes this new covenant. He says, I'm going to give you the Torah. And the Torah is going to be like crutches. It's going to assist you as you walk in the path of God. Um, the Torah is not what will save them. The Torah is meant to guide them and help them be a holy and separate people. God's people were always, like I always say, always supposed to be holy, set apart. Holy means the Greek word hagios, which means different. God's people are different than everyone else. We're supposed to be weird. And so they're going to be a weird people. But there's another subplot. Israel fails. God gives them the Torah to set them apart. However, the Torah itself, Paul writes about it in the book of Romans, um, that the Torah itself, what the Torah does is it, it names and reveals our sin. And it, it, it shows us just how depraved and sinful we actually are. It's like when there's a breeze moving through, like a light breeze, and you're like, where's the leak coming from of the air coming through? And so maybe you spread out like a sheet, and suddenly you see the sheet waving and moving. And now you can see something that you can never see before. The, the breeze of like, sort of sin moving through. Like when you lay it down over our lives, you see just how sinful we are. And it became this stumbling block. Um, I believe I have a passage here from Paul. No one will be declared, declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. And the law made us very conscious of our sins. And so, there is another response from God because the law failed to do its job as well. We would not allow it. We were so sinful that we just could not keep it. And so behind the drum set, <laughs> there is another, um, there is another um, plot there. And that is the, uh, God's response is, uh, is the Messiah. And as, as, God, as God speaks through the prophets, he tells them, you know what? There's going to be a new Adam. I'm going to create a new human being. Paul calls him the new Adam as well. Um, there's going to be a new person that is going to fulfill all of the things that you were not all of the ways that you could not be, and that is the Messiah. And Paul, when he's teaching these people down in the synagogues, in places like Philippi and other places, this is what Paul is getting to. He wants them to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Messiah, and through Jesus, everything is restored as it should be. Restoration through Jesus, our Messiah, and through Jesus, everything is made whole again. Everything is put to rights as it should be. There is once again God ruling directly over his people, but it has been now sort of edited and accommodating to us because now there is actually a human, Jesus Christ, who is led by the Spirit, who is also God. When God becomes a human, God now reigns as king over his people, and the order, the hierarchy of creation is restored. And now we can move forward and things can be as they were supposed to be. Again, we have our king. But as people of God have always done, we use our king for what we want. 
And when we don't want him, we replace him with other kings and we follow those kings. Whether political leaders or thought leaders or philosophers or whatever, we follow these other people and we live by their ways instead of the path of Christ. And in fact, sometimes when we talk about things like turning the other cheek and loving our enemies, we respond with, well, that, that doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense. And we say, it was never supposed to work. It was supposed to make you Christ-like because Jesus is our king. It was never supposed to accomplish these things that you were looking for in earthly leaders. The things that they are promising you sound great, but those are not the things that God actually planned on giving you from the very beginning. That is not the point of the whole thing. And so when you see Paul in the synagogue, it says Paul went to the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days in a row, he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. That is a huge deal. I don't think people ponder just how big of a, of a deal that is, that suddenly there's a bunch of Jews that understand that the world has been made right again and begin to follow Jesus. Um, as did large numbers of God-fearing Greeks. Do you remember what the God-fearing Greeks are? Those are not just people who are like, I fear God. Those are, those are, those are Greeks who have basically converted to Judaism um, to the point where they even... Um, underwent sort of the, the Jewish rites of circumcision and stuff so that they could be included. They could not enter the center of the temple, but they could enter certain wings of it. Um, but they were, they were in. They believed in the Jewish, um, Jewish people's God. Um, and quite a few prominent women. And at some point I want to talk about that because that's actually a big deal as well, but I don't have time today. Um, so, there are two ways, two things that Paul always stresses when he teaches the story, the narrative of God, what I've called this nesting doll sort of narrative. Do you understand now? Nesting doll. It all kind of fits in this thing and it makes it whole again. All these things are captured in the story of God and his people. Um, and the two things that, God, that Paul teaches is that God is faithful, always, never abandoning us. No matter how much we fail, God makes another way. Paul is convinced God will never stop chasing anyone. He will bring them back somehow. And also to God is presence. God always responds by moving closer, not pushing away. At the very beginning of the story in Genesis, God seems far away. He's sort of like in the clouds in the sky. They're trying to build stuff to get there. And then God creates a people and he moves in amongst them. He tabernacles with them, he says. He lives amongst them in their neighborhood. And then God even gives them a permanent temple. And then like he's getting closer and closer. Eventually he puts on like a, like a, like a human suit and becomes a human being. And he becomes like them so that he can live amongst them and know them and experience the world the way that they do and lead them through. And then eventually he sends his spirit to indwell within us. It's like God can't get close enough to us. It's like he keeps moving closer and closer and closer. And when you watch Jesus move through the world, he's touching people, he's hugging them, he's embracing them. He's like spitting on his hands and making mud and healing like their blind eyes. Like Jesus can't get close enough. He can't. At no point does God ever say, I'm done. He always makes another way. And so, this is the story as Paul understands it. This is how first century Jewish Pharisees viewed the world. Um, so this is how Paul speaks, and he believed Jesus was the, the, the solution, the wrapping up of the whole thing. And so Christians, for, uh, for Paul and Luke and Silas, are the ones who believe that the world already has been made right and is now being made right by Jesus. That Jesus is our king, that we live in a world we have already been restored to the place that we are supposed to be, um, and that God is bringing the kingdom of earth in. And we doubt it so much, and it causes us to take part in activities 
that unraveled the whole thing again. But God is faithful, and God will keep doing God's work. There will be times when there is sort of a, a cutting away and a falling away and a, a, a purging of, of sort of um, the idolaters and stuff. But God will always preserve his people. God will always move towards his people. So, that is the narrative of Paul that he tends to teach people. I'm going to teach you two more narratives next week, and these things all sort of intertwine in this whole thing. That one may have been brand new to you. You may have never heard it. The Jewish people were not evangelical Christians. They, they didn't believe necessarily like we do, and it's really helpful to get into their minds when we read the text. Um, so the question is, how do we now, as followers of Jesus, Jesus is now our king, how do we take part in the restoring of the fallen world? How does this happen? How do we help bring salvation to the world? Um, what does this mean for us, looking in on this, as people who are called to be like Christ? Well, Jesus has shown us how salvation enters into the world. He has shown us how things are made right again, and he's invited us, actually, into it. Jesus has brought salvation to Israel by summing up Israel's story in himself. He enters in, he tabernacles with them, he identifies with them, and he tells the world, Whoever is, is against them is against me, and whoever's with them is with me. And I, sometimes people hear that, and they don't quite understand what is going on there. The Israelites were a, a poor, wandering, small band of, of very lowly people, semi-nomadic, wandering through the desert, always susceptible to being attacked by, the, by their enemies on the outside. And God comes into them, this small minority group, and says, Hey, I am all-powerful God, the creator of everything. And I'm going to partner with you, the lowest clan in the world. And I want you to know, whoever is with you, I'm with them. Whoever's against you, I'm against them. And this is a hard thing to swallow, but I want you to ponder what it means. Imagine if you stood there and you see somebody who is a complete failure and everyone, they've done something wrong, and everyone, everyone is just mocking and neglecting and ostracizing and oppressing this person and kicking them out. And suddenly the king walks in. And the king walks in and picks them up and puts their arm around them and says, hey, I'm with this person. And whoever is against him is against me. And whoever is with them is with me. This is what is happening. The God of all creation, the most powerful being, in the, 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 the peak of royalty, enters in and associates with the outcasts, and with the oppressed, which is exactly what Jesus does the entire time that he is walking amongst us. Do you know how powerful it is when a really high status, high honor person stands next to someone and identifies with them and says, they're with me? It's life-changing. It's life-changing. I remember this one time, there was this, um, um, I, my band, we opened up for this um, famous, like, well-known author. I'm not going to bring his name into it because some people don't like him. Whatever. Um, but, like, this, this, famous like speaker and author. He was on the cover of Time Magazine and stuff like that. And, and we got offered a chance to open up for him and, and play some music before he speaks. And we did. And it was awesome. Hung out in the green room and we talked. And it was just like, like a little starstruck because I'd never been in, in the presence of somebody that likes like so high. And like we have an honor system sort of in our society, right? And he's so high and I'm like trying to make conversation. And, and uh, I was like in my mid-20s. So I, you know, you're trying to impress people, whatever. Probably didn't go well. I probably look like an idiot. But all I know is a couple of years later, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and I find out he's speaking somewhere at like a bookstore or something like that, doing a signing. And I go over there, and he's, and he's there, and I see him, and he's like hanging out, talking with a bunch of people. And I walk in, and he looks up, and he goes, oh, Tommy. Right? <laughs> and everyone turns and looks at me, and I'm like, that's right. 
I'm Tommy. He knows that. He knows mine. Like, what that does for you is makes you feel like, like a God amongst men. Like when you walk into a room, right? Like, somehow we are drawn to this power. Somehow we're drawn to this power. And the God of the universe is associating with you and I. And oftentimes we just hang our heads so low. We walk around. But God is with you. And God is for you. And, like, this is why the cross... This is my, one of my favorite pictures of the cross. By the way. This is why the cross is so powerful. This is why it's so powerful. Perfection, beco- becoming to the world shame and ugliness to rescue the shamed and the ugly. God entering into the lowest people in the Roman Empire, becoming one of them, and then going below them to bear the shame of murderers and insurrectionists. And he becomes hanging between them, associating with them speaking with them, eating dinner with them sometimes. This is what Jesus is doing in order to lift them up. And so here I I would say if, if, if there is like this summary line to this sermon, I would say this. I would say we bring God's salvation into the world the same way that Jesus did, by living out the story of Christ in our lives. The life that Jesus lived, we are being called to live as well. That is why I've said this a million times. We have not just the book of Luke, we also have the book of Acts. The book of Luke is about Jesus Um, and his life that he lived. And the book of Acts is like this mirror image when you put them together of the Christians living exactly like Christ did, suffering the same things that he did, doing the same miracles that he did, saying the same things he did, bringing in the same people that he did. Jesus, the church. Jesus and you. This is how we bring salvation to the world, by living out the life of Christ in our bodies. And so when you read in the Gospels the story of Jesus, you see him welcoming these little children, which means... How do, I mean, when you read these stories, like, how do you work these out in your life? How, what does it mean to welcome the little children into my midst? Well, it means oftentimes embracing people of low status, even when others are standing over you with furrowed brows saying, what are you doing with this person? How could you sit there and have a meal with them? Healing, like Jesus healed the layman on the Sabbath. How do we work this out in our lives? Well, it means sometimes um, you have to break the rules of religion in order to bring healing to people. Oftentimes, you have to defy the religious leaders to do the Christ-like thing, like creating space at the table precisely for those whom the religious elite have neglected, giving racial and ethnic minorities, our gay brothers and sisters, our immigrants, our, our women and single and married, a seat at the table as your equals, not just your brothers and your, not, not, not just other people on the outside trying to get in, as your equals, as your brothers and sisters, to look at them as your siblings and say, you are equal with me. We gather together as broken icons of God in this place, and we recognize Jesus as our king together. Let us all move towards Christ together, crawling towards him as best we can and living our lives in this way. What, what does it mean to heal the centurion's son? When Jesus did this, what does this mean for us to heal the centurion's son? It means looking at our, our oppressors oftentimes, our enemies, and truly desiring what is good for them and saying, I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to die. I don't, I don't wish death upon you. I don't wish my government to bomb you and kill you. Uh, all I want is for you and I to be siblings. I want your flourishing. I want you to know God. I want you to know goodness and to love your family and to know community. I want goodness for you, not death and pain and sorrow, no matter what you want for me. This is what it means to be Christ-like. And so we find moments to embody the life of Jesus. You read the text, you live it out. You find moments to embody whatever story you are in. 
And then you also find times to embody the death of Christ, which means oftentimes entering into the suffering which brings healing. Like verse 3, where it, like, which says that Jesus had to suffer. Because, I mean, how can you bring salvation to a suffering people unless you enter in to their space, in their life, in their suffering? Oftentimes, religious people will have you stand on the outside and beckon people up. I'm going to give you some money, I'm going to throw, but I, I really need you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I need you to climb out of that hole that you're in. No, 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 no. Jesus jumps in the hole and dwells with them and reasons with them and loves them and finds ways to walk them out of that hole at great cost to himself. This is what God does in this world. This is the difference between religion and allegiance to Jesus. Religion tells you, here's how you climb the ladder to get to God. Allegiance and relationship and and loyalty and faith in God stands at the bottom and looks up and notices that God is walking down the ladder to join you where you are so that he can lead you out. God's people, when they truly seek to understand, find a God who makes a ladder and then descends down it, a God who humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant. And so salvation comes not through religious hardening and strengthening of the religious body. It comes through the body broken and poured out. Jesus didn't ascend to the throne while he was walking this earth. He ascended to the cross. And only after that did he ascend to the throne at the ascension. And so we find moments to embody his life, and then we find moments to embody his death, and then we find moments to embody his resurrection. Making dead things alive again, broken things being made whole again by lifting up dead and buried people, restoring shamed people, letting everyone know, hey, tomorrow doesn't have to be like today is. This is not your permanent state. Things can be made right. You Things can be made whole again. You can be lifted up. And I am here to walk with you and encourage you in this way. Seeing hope in people, even after failure upon failure, the resurrection of Jesus is not just the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the resurrection of all of humanity to where we were created to be led directly by God over creation to lead and have dominion and bring it to flourish all those who do not yet recognize God as their king and their savior embodied in Christ and so in every moment we embody the story of Jesus his life his death his resurrection and his kingship Let the Spirit guide you as it guided him. Put your own story and identity away. This is what it means to be hidden in Christ, that in those moments when you really, really want to act, when I sometimes really, really want to to act like Tommy, and I need to make a decision, okay, I don't need Tommy right now. Tommy's going to do something stupid. What I need is Jesus here now, and so I'm going to hide myself in Christ. I'm going to embody Christ. I'm going to call upon the Spirit. I'm going to say, Spirit, that led Jesus through the wilderness. I am there now, and I need you to lead me now and oftentimes I call up like I I pray to the full Godhead right like I pray to the Father for wisdom and guidance I pray to the Spirit um, to lead me in this world I pray to Jesus and I say Jesus I need your presence here now cover me don't let them see me let them see you like I I pray to God in this way so that I can be what Christ was for these people and so as I close this up my encouragement to you is um as you gather in your house churches and, and, and in these places where you have these conversations, tell each, other, tell each other about the moments that you had where you embodied the story of Christ. 
You could say I had a woman at the well moment this week or I had a, a table flipping moment this week, right? Um, I had a, a garden of Gethsemane moment this week where I looked up and I realized that Jesus was there with me and, and I was able to, to persevere and find hope. Um, I was betrayed, you know, with, with my friends maybe and, and, and who wouldn't stand with me and, and, I, and I placed my life in Christ and I was led by the presence and the spirit and if I hadn't, this would have been my response, but instead I did this because I, I chose not to live by the flesh, but to live by the Spirit. And every day, laying your flesh on the altar again and living by the Spirit. I think a lot more of this is going to make sense when we eventually go through the book of Romans. Um, I'm very excited about that. And so this is what I bring to you today. I, I, uh, I hope maybe is helping you think through some, some, some ways that you are trying to order your life in a way that is Christiform, formed by the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the reign of Jesus Christ. And so if you would stand with me, I'm going to pray, and then I would like to do the, uh, the Lord's Prayer with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Thank you for the worship we had this morning, and, um, and my family and friends gathered here, my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would unify us, that you would build us up towards you, that you would make us look like you. We love you, Father, and we need you. We need you to cover us. We need you to hide us in you. We need you to give us your thoughts and, uh, and your ways and your heart. We need your eyes. We need your ears. We need all of it. I pray that we would not live our lives, that we would live your life, and that the story that we are living would not be just this one of, of, uh, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as everyone around us is trying to live, that it would be one of restoration and salvation and goodness and mercy and justice as a people with a king who has made things right and is continuing to make things right again. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. So do this with me, Lord's Prayer, shall we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you know the rest, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the greatest Sunday of your life.